am a mom, a daughter, a wife, a teacher. Nice, friendly. Silly. Outgoing, caring, and uh, respectful. I would say kind and generous. A yes man. I am a person who loves to just engage with everyone and just to get new ideas and new experiences. Well, someone that's patient and kind and um, they respect others around them. Funny, caring, um, always someone to rely on or go to. I want to be described as a leader, as someone that speaks up for others, as someone that's always joyful and happy. and welcome to the new year and a brand new sermon series that we are going to begin. And this sermon series is on a hot topic. What I mean by that is that it's a subject that is being talked about a lot in schools, in the culture, at the coffee shop, in homes. We're going to be talking about identity. And over the next four weekends, we want to answer some of the questions that people are asking, your kids are asking if you have children in school, questions like, who am I? Or what does it mean to be a human or a person? Or where do we come from? Why is life the way that it is? And so we're going to try to tackle and answer those questions. And some of you probably are thinking to yourself, I already have answers to those questions. I already have a sense of who I am and where I came from and what life means. And no doubt you probably do. But I am sure you do know somebody that doesn't. It might be a child, it might be a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, people at work around you. Maybe you yourself are just having lots of doubts and you're just wondering with all the conversation in the media, what is, what is the truth about who we are? So I think it will be helpful for you to listen, and I gotta ask you to do me a favor. Why don't you hear the whole series through before you maybe jump to some conclusions, especially if you're a skeptic or a doubter, I'm really glad you're here, that you're willing to listen to all sides of the story, so to speak. To begin with, though, we're gonna take a little different approach than I normally would. We're gonna step back from the trees, look at the forest, we're gonna ask a question, how did we get to this place where we have these kinds of questions on our mind and in our hearts? where kids are unsure about who they are. To answer that question, I want to borrow from an ethicist by the name of Andrew Walker. He says that there are several streams of thinking that have led us to where we are, especially in the Western world and particularly in this nation. He said one of those streams happens to be relativism. And by the way, if you can't keep up with me because i got a lot of territory to cover this weekend. We'll put the outline on the blog as well. But just so we all have one common working definition, the way I would define relativism is the idea that there is no one way to understand the world. That there are many ways to understand the world. That there's no one truth that governs everything. There are many truths by which we arrive at our beliefs. And your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. And anybody who comes along and says that they know the truth, 
that there is just this one way, well, they're power hungry. They're trying to usurp control over the rest of us. Therefore, as Christians, followers of Christ, who believe what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but through me, it is easy for us to be on the receiving end of, well, a lot of anger, a lot of disagreement, even sometimes hatred because of how we come across. And while relativism sounds interesting and fascinating, you have to understand that relativists do the very same thing that they don't like other people doing. They come along and impose their concept of what truth is or how many truths are viable and insist that we all go along with it. And that to be angry with them is to be, well, frankly, to be intellectually stupid in their minds. Not all, but in many of their minds. So that's relativism. Secondly, post-Christendom. Now, by post-Christendom, what I mean is this, and I, I think you might agree with me, that our nation was framed on certain values and moral principles that were drawn out of what we call a Judeo-Christian background. Now, that's how the Founding Fathers kind of framed it for all of us. Progressively, however, since the inception of our nation, we have moved away from those morals and from those values, rejecting some, rewriting others, and in a deep state of questioning those things these days. The problem with that is if you take God out, the God of the Bible out, and if you take those morals or values out, you got to replace them with something because no nation can govern itself without some set of values and boundaries and morals. No society can contain itself without some sense of boundaries and morals. And so the question is, whose or what will they be? Third influence, says Walker, is radical individualism. And by the way, as, as I go through these things, just, you know, what I challenge you to do is just say to yourself, okay, I hear you saying that. Now let me, let me look at culture. Let me look at what's happening around me and ask yourself if you don't see it. So radical individualization or radical individualism is the idea that I write my own script in life. This is my life, and I'm going to live my life the way I choose to live my life, and I'll write it the way I want to. I'll beg, borrow from anybody I want. The next influence is what's called Gnosticism, which has been around a really long time. It just gets rebranded different ways in different ages. It's a complex kind of belief system, but one of its tenets is that your body and your soul are separate. And that your body is really a tool for you to use, shape, change any way you want. Because in the end, it doesn't really matter anyway. What matters mostly is that immaterial aspect of your life. And then that leads to the last one, which is the sexual revolution, which came along and said, if you really want to be free, then the way you do that is you fulfill the desires of your flesh, of your body. Sexually, if you are free, you will be free indeed. It's your body. Use it however you want to use it. And that, of course, has led to the hookup culture and so many things that we see prevalent in our society today. Walker then concludes with this interesting comment. He says, there are two unforgivable sins in a postmodern, post-Christian, and individualistic world. The first is to judge someone else. The second is to fail to fulfill your desires. 
So in a secular culture, there are two things that are wrong for you to do. One is to judge others, and number two, to fail to fulfill your own desires. Now, I want to comment on the judge thing for just a moment. There's none of us, there's no human being that goes through life judgment-free, meaning they don't ever judge. You can't exist. you gotta, you got to make some judgments. I think they're playing a couple football games this afternoon. Referees will be out there making certain judgment calls based on what is done. you got to have some moral values to be able to do that. What is wrong, however, is when we judge with hatred and condemnation. When we judge with an attitude of arrogance that I'm better than somebody else. God condemns that kind of judgment. God is the only righteous judge, and he doesn't ask us to speak for him in those moments. So yes, I have to speak the truth. Yes, we should be able to disagree with each other, but I shouldn't hate you because you disagree with me, or I disagree with you. And particularly as we enter into this political season, let's not get caught up in all the hate that's out there these days. That shouldn't be part of us. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But that, that kind of begs uh, another question. And that question is, how do we even get to this point in society where we have all these streams of thinking kind of converging and all this mixture of thought and ideology? Greg Kokel is an apologist. He's a, a scholar and intellect. And uh, he wrote a book. And uh, the name of his book is The Story of Reality. And in it, he says that there are basically four questions that every civilization asks. It doesn't matter where that civilization is, on the other side of the world or here right now. It doesn't matter. But that there are four basic questions that we all ask in every age. The first one is this. Where did we come from? We all ask that question. Where did we come from? Students ask that question. Adults ask that question. Sometimes we think we know where we come from. And then we think again, where did we come from? The second question is, what is our problem? Maybe you asked that this week of your kids. What is your problem? Maybe they asked that of you. What is your problem? That's not exactly what we mean, but hey, there's a problem. Have you noticed that? Kids have problems, parents have problems, pastors have problems. We all have problems. Where did all that come from? Third question is, what is the solution? What's the solution to the problems that we see you know, we got people running for offices who promise us that if we vote for them, they have the solution. We've been around a really long time on this old planet Earth, and nobody's been able to solve the problem completely. And then last but not least, how will this end up for us? Those are the four basic questions that people ask themselves, students, adults, old, young, middle-aged, doesn't matter, male, female, doesn't matter. It's the question we are always asking and what Coco says is that there are basically three stories that we use to answer those questions. Now, these three stories may come in different ways, but they all boil down to three different headings. It's how we try to tell the story, where we came from, what's wrong, how to fix it, and how we're all going to end up. The first story he calls Godism. Godism. Godism describes the belief that there is one source responsible for everything that is, all of creation. Now, as soon as I say that, some people are going to ask the question, well, is that source also responsible for all the evil and, and bad things in the world? We'll cover that more next weekend. But it is the belief that there's one source from which everything was created, and that source is knowable, 
and knows, has personality, has morals, has values, and therefore has the right to govern his creation, has the right to lay down design and purpose for each of us and gives us our identity. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that that one, capital O-N-E, is the God of the Bible, who I know confuses some people because we speak of him as one and three, <laughs> called the Trinity. One God, one in essence, three distinct personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second mindset or way of telling the story is what's called mindism. And mindism says there is, there is a power in the universe, impersonal, impersonal. And we are all like, like little drips off of that great energy. How many of you have seen the last Star Wars movie just came out? <clears throat> Did you like it? How many of you didn't like it? Yeah, I've, I've heard some people didn't like it. I haven't seen it yet. You say, why are you talking about Star Wars? Because I had to buy Christmas gifts for my kids. And they all wanted Legos, and they wanted the Star Wars Legos. So we built those over Christmas. Yay! But they're good enough to build them. I just watch. Remember, I, I'll ruin it if I try. But what is Star Wars all about? Star Wars is all about the force, the dark side, the good side, right? Well, that idea, the force, is mindism, all right? It's, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And so the idea behind this is that someday we will all be reabsorbed back in that energy again. It may take several lifetimes, but we're all going to get there and we'll lose our personality. Really what this life is right now is really an illusion if we can become one with that energy. And it's what gives rise to Buddhism, Hinduism, lots of other isms, including a lot of the New Ageism that is around these days. And then the last story is materialism. This is a bad story as far as I'm concerned, but it's taught in many secular universities. And that whole, I, I should say all secular universities, that whole idea is that we're here by accident. The right molecules, atoms, everything kind of came together at the right moment and eternity passed some point and boom, here we are. Therefore, there is no God, there is no impersonal force out there. It's just matter and gravity and energy. You are born, you live, you die, and that's the end of you. What a way to start out the new year, huh? And that's very prevalent in the culture and, and, and society. And what a lot of people believe is the story behind why we're here, which just doesn't give a lot of hope and a lot of help when you really think about it. So the question becomes, which story is the right story? And I believe that the right story is the story of Godism, but I would say specifically it is the story of the God of the Bible. And so we're going to go to the scriptures and we're going to think about the God of the Bible. And I'm going to ask you to think about it carefully with me, whether you believe already or you don't, and ask yourself, are you believing the right story? And I think the other thing you're going to see is the other stories really don't add up when you think about it. So finally, let's open our Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. Francis Schaeffer once said that uh, sometimes we are, are led to think that the greatest truth in all the world is that Jesus died to save us from our sins. But he said it's not. <gasps> Sounds like heresy, doesn't it? Francis, what happened to you? But Schaeffer says the greatest truth begins with the fact that in the beginning God was. In other words, if God does not exist, the story of Jesus is a myth. 
But if there is a God, then we can count on the story of Jesus. And so Genesis 1 begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now look at John chapter 1 and look at the familiarity, uh, the similarity, I should say, between John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and this word, word, is logos in the Greek, and what it means, logos means a expression of something, the reason behind everything. And this is referring to Jesus, of course. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he uses the word logos, word, because Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And the word was, was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. We'll come back to that at the end. And the darkness has not over. Come it. Now, I want to build on this. I want to borrow from Tim Keller, great theologian and, and pastor. And, and I want to borrow some of his ideas and thoughts and, and kind of frame this out for us. Because I can't do better than him. So let's break it up together and look at this. Let's start out with our first, our first thought. In the beginning, there was God. That's pretty plain and simple, isn't it? Genesis just begins the whole story that before anything else was, God already was. God has no beginning. God has no end. See, I just struggle so much with that idea. Well, let's say that that's not true. You still have to come up with a reason for why everything is. It takes just as much faith to believe it just somehow happened than to say that God is responsible for it. And that's what I believe. I think that's what the evidence points out. That it is God who initiated all of this. He is the source of creation. His story is the accurate true story about who we are, how we got here, what the problem is, what the solution is, and how it's all going to end up. And what you're, I think, hopefully are going to see is that the other aspects, the other stories cause more problems than they give solutions. So, for instance, let me draw upon a French philosopher. His name is Jean-Paul Sartre lived in the 1900s, died around 1988, which feels really weird for me to say he lived back in the 1900s now. That's the truth. And he was not a believer in God. He was a humanist, an uh, existentialist, and uh, just had no room for God. But he was an honest humanist, an honest atheist. In talking about what the ramifications were. And so in an essay, he uses the example of a paper knife, which is the same thing as a letter, a paper pen, which is also a, a, a letter opener. And nowadays with emails, you may have to explain to your children what a letter opener is. Go show them what one is like, all right? But he said somebody invented the, invented the, the letter opener, and they designed it specifically to be used to get envelopes open quickly and neatly. He said it wasn't designed to cut marble. It wasn't designed to cut steak or to open a tin can. It was designed for opening letters. That was its purpose. Then he applies it to believing in God or not believing in God. He says that if there is a God, then the only conclusion is all of us have a purpose in life. 
We were then all designed for God and for his purposes, and we need to find our purpose and our identity in the God who then designed us. But he said, there is no God. Now listen carefully. He's a very smart man. If there is no God, then there is no purpose. And he says, and this is his word, we must face that bravely. If there is no God, there is no purpose. Theodore Dostoevsky was an Orthodox Christian, a brilliant man. And he wrote these words. We need to listen to him carefully. He says, if there is no God, everything is permissible. Remember what I told you, evaluate this based on what you see and know in the culture. He says the logical outcome is that if there is no God, everything is permissible. There was a British highly intellectual woman by the name of Philippa Foote who taught for a time at the University of California. She also was humanist, secularist, atheist, didn't believe in God, but she was honest enough to say this. She said, if you don't believe in God, there is no truth. See, I, I can deal with somebody who's honest. So you've got Sartre who says, if there is no truth, everything, everything is purposeless. Dostoevsky says, if there is no truth, everything's permissible. And Foote says, that there is no, if there is no God, there is no truth. That doesn't leave us in a good place, does it? The problem is we all sense that we are hardwired with moral parameters, with, with a need for a system of values. Why is that hardwired in us? The answer to the question is because in the beginning was God. There's a guy by the name of, um, let's see, his name is Loyal R. Loyal D-R-U-E, Loyal D-Rue. It's a strange name. He's a religious philosopher. And he says, if that is the case, that there is no God, he said, then like Plato, we must come up with a noble lie. Do you know what a noble lie is? Most of them are always religious. Noble lies are a myth you must place on the society to keep the society from becoming anarchists. A noble lie is something that we all have to believe. It's not true, but we're all going to agree to believe in it, kind of like Santa Claus, and kind of go along with the whole thing just so we can maintain order in society. I don't know about you, but that really bothers me. I don't want to believe in a noble lie, because <laughs> it's a lie. No matter what you call it, it's still a lie. Put lipstick on a pig and it's still a pig, right? It's just, it is what it is. And I don't know about you, but man, no wonder we have problems in our society today. Because we're following and believing in the wrong stories. If you want to know freedom, then discover your design, your purpose in God. I like eagles. I really like bald eagles. I don't know why, something about that word bald. But they're not bald. And every time I look up at an eagle, I think to myself, man, that eagle is so free. I wish I could fly like an eagle. So I think there's a song from the 70s about that. 
So I tried one day when I was a kid. I put a cape on, and I jumped off the table, and guess what? I crashed, and it hurt. Because I'm not designed to be an eagle, and I can't fly like an eagle. Sometimes when I'm running, not in the wintertime, uh, when it's nicer outside, and it happened a couple times, I'll see an eagle soaring above me, and I, sometimes I think to myself, does the eagle ever look down at me and think to itself, man, I wish I could run like him? And then fly down and try to keep pace with me. I'm not that fast, but can you imagine an eagle trying to run? The eagle, would, it would just be funny. It would look awkward, terrible. Why? It was not designed to run. It's most free when it's flying. I am most free when I'm walking or when I'm running. When I live in God's design for me, that's when I have ultimate freedom. When I try to break out of that, it's when things get painful, when things get difficult, when things don't work out well. That's where our greatest freedom is, is when we live in that design. You say, well, how do I come to know the design that God that God has established for me. A couple of things. Number one is the word of God. God's word reveals that to us. Look what the scriptures say. This next verse says, "So See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. That's your design. That's your identity. God made you to be his children. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In other words, if you don't know God, you don't know who you are. Isn't that interesting? Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, we, you have no idea what's still to be unpacked in your life. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's your identity. There's mine. God made us, listen, to be supernatural. And that supernaturalness has begun in us, in our spirit. And God's beckoning us to come and explore what that means for us. And then he says at the end of the age when he returns, he says he'll complete the project because we're going to get a new body. A resurrected body. Now how many of you wake up every day and look in the mirror and say, I'm supernatural. <laughs> you don't do that. You see everything that's wrong with you and everything that's wrong with everybody else. You see what's not working right. You students, you know, our students face a lot of pressure. Who are they supposed to be? The world gives them a dozen different answers. But they're the children of God. They're supernatural. And what I've got to do is I've got to lean into who Christ has made me in the Spirit. Which then leads us to the second aspect. we got to learn what it means to pray in the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not talking about speaking in tongues or ecstatic languages here. Read Ephesians. Read Romans. Paul talks about what it means to pray. He talks about praying in the Spirit. But I just finished reading the book of Jude over Christmas break in my quiet time. And I came across verse 20. In verse 20 it says, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and say it with me, Praying in the Holy Spirit. I made a note to myself, got to do a series on this. In all the references where it says, in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? It's not like praying for your meal. God, thank you for this food. Amen. It's not that quick little prayer while you're driving the car. 
Praying in the Spirit is to center yourself in God. Praying in the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit, to be dependent on the Spirit, to come into the control of the Spirit. And the Spirit takes over and He leads you to discover who He is and discover who you are. How many of us take time to read God's Word? How many of us take time to read, to know who we are by knowing who God is? How many of us ever take time to center ourselves and surrender ourselves to the Spirit? Could you do that this year? Could you go on a map of discovery? See, I don't have any problem with somebody disagreeing with me about the story of how we got here, what the problem is, how, what the solution is, and what, how it's all going to end up. But I, I would ask them at least to take a look at what God says. Be intellectually honest and, and look at all the evidence. Look at all the evidence. All right, let's move on. All right, so we talked about in the beginning was God. Now, before the beginning, there was love. Before the beginning, there was love. Why do I say that? Because 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is what? God is love. God is love. So in the beginning, there was love. Look what it says here in Genesis. Interesting line there in Genesis chapter 1. It says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That word hovering in the Hebrew is a word that is also used to describe a mother who is doting over her baby. Or when Jesus said, how often I would have gathered you, Israel, like little chicks, like a mother hen gathers her little chicks under her wings. Do you know that the world was created out of the love of God? You were created, I was created out of God's love. Now I know something's wrong, we'll talk about it next week. But God's original intent, intent was out of love. You know that God is in a love relationship in the Trinity, that mystery, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one divine essence, three distinct personalities. They love one another. There's a perfect love there. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, I know the Father loves me and I love the Father. You can't separate the Trinity. It exists in perfect love. And listen, it is the most unselfish love. It is the most unselfish love. And God created you and me in that unselfish love. He created us to be unselfish lovers as well. That's why in Genesis chapter 2 it says, And the man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. I am so glad everybody wore clothes today. Why did you wear clothes today? Well, besides the fact that we live in cold Minnesota. I'm starting to sound like a Minnesotan. I said that like a Minnesotan. Minnesota. I lost my train of thought. Because we live in cold Minnesota, all right, we wear our clothes. But it goes far beyond that. We wear it because we're self-conscious. We, we want to hide. We don't want to be seen. Adam and Eve were not self-conscious. They were totally other-conscious and God-conscious. That's why marriage is one of the most powerful illustrations of, of, of the Trinity and of, of what love's supposed to be like in a good and godly marriage where the husband and the wife can be themselves with each other, can be naked, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally with each other because they feel secure in each other's love. Now, we have problems with that in our culture because of sin. In our lives, in my life too, there's no perfect marriage. But it's a, it's a type of a picture of what God wants. See, where are you going with all of that? God intended for us to be unselfish lovers of everybody. Can you imagine what a paradise this world would be in? If we just all unselfishly loved other people. 
See, I say unselfishly because oftentimes when I say I love my wife or I love my kids, it's because I want something back from them. You know, give me some love. Well, I'll give you love if you give me some love. But the kind of love that God calls us to give is the kind of love that does, does not require anything back. Can you imagine what your marriage would be like, what your family would be like if you just unselfishly loved each other all of the time? Wouldn't that be paradise? Can you imagine what Wooddale Church would be like if we just decided that from now on we're going to unselfishly love each other no matter what? Wow. In student ministry, in junior high and senior high, they're going to unselfishly love each other no matter what. You'd want to come to youth group. You'd want to come to church because it would be so secure and so warm and so friendly. But so many churches today need to repent and apologize first to each other and then to the culture because we're anything but a picture of love to the world. They hear about our bickering and our fighting and our condemning and our hatred. Nobody wants to be part of that. You deal with it all week long. Who wants to give up an hour on the weekend when you could be watching football to come and hang out with a bunch of people who don't like you? <laughs> right? I mean, we are pretenders. Oh, my goodness, I got two minutes left tonight. Got a football game coming up. <laughs> We're all pretenders. I, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself to become lovers because I'm telling you what, you pull love out of the equation. I'm talking about God's love, not human love, which is fickle. You pull God's love out of there. You create a vacuum, and I'll tell you what fills the vacuum, and you tell me if this isn't true by looking at the world today. What fills the vacuum is power and hate, power and violence. You pull God's love out, and that's what will fill it in. Which tells me that the God story must be the true story. Last point, okay? And that is before the beginning, there was darkness. Look what it says in Genesis. It says, darkness was over the surface of the deep. I got to hurry and finish this one up. When God spoke, the darkness turned to light. He separated the light from the darkness. When Jesus came, he came and overcame the darkness, the spiritual darkness. God takes what is chaotic and he brings order to it. God takes what is ugly and he makes it beautiful. Our worship songs were all about that today. Carrie's story was all about that today. How God takes something that's sinful and wicked and a wreck and he turns it into something beautiful and loved and cherished and wonderful. And this whole series is all about moving into that truth, moving into that life, moving into that relationship. Becoming who God has called us to be, which, believe me, surpasses anything any of the other stories of the world has to offer us. So as we begin 2012 together, I want to challenge you to a couple of things. Number one, I want to challenge you to, to the Word of God, to read God's Word. So that you might know God, so that you might know yourself. And if you don't have a reading plan, we'll get one put up on our blog that you can follow. We got little reading plans and those uh, stands that you find out at door one and two. But get into the Word of God. Read it with pleasure. Just say, God, there's a lot of things I don't understand, but there's enough here I can figure out. What do you tell me about me? What do you tell me about yourself? Secondly, I want to challenge you to pray this year like you've never prayed before. We're going to be offering some new prayer opportunities with our new prayer director, and, and you're just going to discover how to move into praying in the Spirit and, and getting closer to God.
Here's the last thing that I want you to do. I'd like to challenge you to make up your mind that this year, and I know you'll blow it because I will too, but we won't give up. I want, you, I want to challenge you to become an unselfish lover. I just, want you, I just want you to make up your mind you're going to love because you are loved. And that even means loving people who are different than us, loving people who can be judgmental toward us, loving people who have a different story than us, loving people who are enemies. And in this political season, I want to challenge all of us not to get caught up in the hate, please. Could we, be, could we, could we try to be free from that? And could we re realize that the solution for this world is Jesus and it is his love? Amen. All right, you've been patient. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, as we go from this place today, may we go in your grace. May we go in your sweetness of love for us. May we go with an excitement, God, that we haven't even begun to live yet. May we learn your story and may we live out your story. The identity you've given us as your children. The supernatural capacity you've placed into our lives. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Dismissed.